All right, if you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Hebrews, book of Hebrews chapter 10. As Todd just mentioned, uh, we, we do have this subject of lordship that we've been going through throughout the, the weekend. And, you know, it began as uh, Todd started us off with that, that heavy call, that heavy uh, thought, I guess, of, of what it means to be a disciple of Christ, the cost of discipleship, and, and almost the impossibility of that. And, and the, one big reason it was impossible is because natural man has no desire to have that, that cost, to pay that cost. But then as we have worked through this weekend, we, we've seen what it means to be a new creature, the joy that that should, should bring in a child of God, to, to be a new creature, to be made new in Christ. We've seen what true repentance is and, and how that is supposed to be in a believer, that, that is a, a change of mind, a change of attitude towards Christ and towards who He is and therefore towards what we think of this world and what it has to offer compared to what Christ is and what He has to offer. We've seen what conversion is, true conversion. How that is a, a chemical reaction. Not, not, not exactly, but we did get a science class, right? We, we've, we saw very well put how that is a, something that has been proven over and over. It is a, uh, a formula that has been proven over and over and, and that a conversion makes a real change in a child of God. And then we, we began to see in the last sermon yesterday from Brother David Bailey how, how that begins to play out in our lives, so to speak, and, and how that we take part in that in a sense. Uh, you know, he, his subject was mortification, and I, I guess I would term it kind of the negative aspect of, of our, our part in that. We are putting to death daily our sins, our old self. We are mortifying the flesh as we grow and sanctify, are sanctified in Christ, looking forward to that ultimate day of perfect sanctification and perfection when sin is no more. My subject today is, as Todd mentioned, is encouragement to endure. And so I, I guess having the negative side of, of our, our part in this, to say, to say, um, to say that, that way, we have the positive side of that this morning, the encouragement to endure, the call to endure. So our, our passage this morning is Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25, and we'll begin by reading the entire passage. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us, through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near." Now, I believe John MacArthur's often quoted statement concerning the security of believers, salvation, I think it's been quoted this, this weekend. I'm not 100% sure. I thought it was. I talked to Todd this morning. He wasn't sure that it was. But either way, whether it's been quoted this, this weekend or not, I'll add one more time to that ledger. John MacArthur states this, quote, If you could lose your salvation, you already would have. Amen. Strong Amen. It would have already happened. 
I know this church believes that that is the biblical view. We believe in what has been termed eternal security. Jesus, as the authority, said this in John 10, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they will follow Me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one can snatch them from My hand. He goes on and says, My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Paul wrote to the church at Philippi and assured them in chapter 1, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He told the Ephesian church, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And if you were still unsure where Paul stood on this subject, he told the Roman church this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. I think that covers it, right? That's everything. I could go on, but I think we see that all who have been supernaturally converted, made new creatures by the work of the Holy Spirit, are secure by the promise of the triune God. And and I hope you saw that in each one of those verses. The triune God is represented in the, the security of the believer. And nothing we nor anyone else can do will change that. And yet... The New Testament is full of passages telling the professing believer to endure. Jesus' parable of the sower and the four different types of seeds warns of two different types of seeds of people who will initially receive the message of Jesus, but because of either lack of depth or or sincerity, or because of cares or, or problems in this world, those seeds die. They go away. They are not good seed. Jude 21 states, Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you eternal life. The apostles busied themselves in Acts 14, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. 2 Timothy 2.12 says, If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will deny us. Hebrews 10.36, a little bit farther on in our passage. We're not going to actually get to this today in in Hebrews 10 as we've already read, but in Hebrews 10.36 says, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. The author goes on a couple of verses later and says, We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So, there are two sides to this, this call, right? There's two sides to this, this coin. There is the, the sovereign side of, of uh, eternal security, the, the, the sovereign side where we know that God secures us and keeps us secure as true believers, but there is without question a call to each professing believer to endure. Amen. This section in Hebrews begins a practical application of the doctrinal truths 
the author has been giving us for some time now. We are jumping into the end of, of this book, basically, or to, to chapter 10 of this book. So we are pretty far in, on, but you will almost always without fail see in God's Word doctrinal truths and practical application. They are, are side by side. They, they are given, one is given and then the other is given as a vast general rule. And, and it is so important to have both. A.W. Pink warns of this. He says, nothing but doctrine will produce a cold and conceited people. I think we've been a part of that to some extent. We've seen that around us. We've seen that in, in ourselves maybe at times, in churches we've been associated with. But nothing but exhortation will result in a discouraged and ill-instructed people. I can't amen that strong enough. So beginning here in verse 9, verses 19 through 22, the author begins this, this practical side of the, after he's gone through the doctrinal exhortation, he begins this practical side, and the author will lay out in these first three verses a threefold privilege that the Christian has been given. And then in the remaining three verses, 23 through 25, he gives a threefold duty that we are to have because of those privileges. A threefold way in which we should live out our confidence in endurance or perseverance. So beginning here in verse 19, we read, Therefore, brothers, therefore, right? You've heard it quite often stated up here, that therefore is there for a reason. We have to understand what it's there for. To do that, we really need to understand the entire book of Hebrews, though. So, strap in. We're about to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We'd be here way longer than this morning. Now, I actually think we can, we can get a, a, an overall broad understanding of the book of Hebrews fairly quickly. I think we can do that in just a couple of sentences. The primary goal of Hebrews, to sum up just the whole book in, in, in one sentence, so to speak, is to show that Jesus is superior. That, that is the primary purpose of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is superior specifically in the book to angels, to Moses. He's superior to Joshua, to the Levitical priesthood, to the Mosaic law. As we get here to chapter 10, the author focuses on how Jesus is superior both to the Old Testament priesthood and to the Old Testament sacrificial system. He focuses on how His work, Jesus' work and sacrifice, bringing in the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. Unlike the blood of bulls and goats, whose blood was only a reminder of sin and could never take away sin, and who had to be offered over and over, Jesus' blood was offered once for all time. And it cleansed believers from all sin. Unlike the high priest under the old covenant law, who could only enter in the presence of God once a year, when once he made the sacrifice, he had to leave knowing that that same work had to be done again by a future high priest, Jesus made the final sacrifice, ascended into heaven, and sat down at the right hand of the Father on high, having finished His perfect work of atonement. So in verse 19, the author says, We therefore have confidence or boldness. Confidence in what or who? Well, not ourselves, right? We have no confidence in ourselves. If we try to approach God through our own works, through our own righteousness, through some religious affiliation, or even through some biblical doctrine, then we will certainly and emphatically be denied access to God. It is in and only in the work of Jesus on the cross that we have boldness or confidence to enter into the holy 
No matter how many verbal professions we make, no matter how many times we get baptized or, or rededicated as it's often termed you, today, if those things are not entirely and wholly through faith in the blood of Jesus, then they are useless. And they get us no closer to God's presence than the Muslim in Turkey trying to earn his favor to Allah. No, this boldness that the, the author here talks about or this confidence, it, it is not subjective, but objective. It is something that is outside of us and not something that we have created on the inside of ourselves. It is because of Jesus' sacrifice that we have access into the holy places. Again, unlike those in the Old Testament economy. And this is huge. I really don't think we properly grasp how incredible this is and how important this is. Honestly, I'm not sure that we are really capable of fully understanding this, at least not in the way that an Israelite would have as they heard this. The idea of coming to God for the Jew was foreign. When Adam ate the fruit in the garden, he was put, on, put out of the presence of God, right? Put out of the garden. And the garden was sealed off by threat of death by the angels who were placed with flaming swords to guard its entrance. When the law was given by God on Mount Sinai, God's presence it terrified the Hebrews, and for good reason. When the law, or excuse me, not only did the visual scene that they had there as they saw the presence of God on the mountain, as they saw that, not only did that strike fear in them, but they were warned not to approach the mountain where God's presence hovered, lest they die. Even once the law was given and the Israelite entered into that mosaic, Israelites entered into that mosaic covenant, the Hebrew had no direct access to the presence of God. God's presence was in the Holy of Holies, the inner part of the temple, and the only one again who had access to that place was the high priest once a year. If if any other, anyone other than the, the high priest entered in that place, it meant death. So for the Jew, the, the holy places or the holy of holies was a place to stay away from. It was a place of fear almost. No Jew would have confidence to enter there. Even the high priest entered with some caution and trepidation. The blood of Jesus under the new covenant, though, has given us confidence to enter the holy places. We can boldly approach the throne of God today through the blood of Christ. Not arrogantly. Not boldly in our own work or in our own righteousness but boldly and confidently in the blood of Jesus. The author goes on to explain that this is the new and living way. It is the new way as in the new covenant. New as in not part of the Old Testament system, the old covenant system. When Jesus died, He made the old covenant obsolete and and now we approach God again through the blood of Jesus in the new covenant. It is living, living in two ways. Living because Jesus as the sacrifice is now living, right? Every single sacrifice under that old uh, covenant remained dead, obviously. There's no risen bulls, risen goats, risen sheep walking around. But Jesus, when He died, He rose. Death could not hold Him. The grave could not keep Him. He lives today in heaven above. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life according to John 14.6. He is the living bread according to John 6.51. He is the water of eternal life according to John 4.14. He is the one that lives forevermore according to Revelation 1.18. We as believers then are living stones as we have a living hope according to 1 Peter. So this is the second way in which we have life through the new way. 
Through the, the new covenant and the work of Jesus. Again, in comparison to the old covenant, we, we see the author here making this comparison. The, the old covenant was death. Constant death through sacrifices, again, that never brought life. And death for all who were under it. In the sense that the law was never able to bring salvation for life. It was never able to bring life to anyone. It was only a constant reminder that God has given us standard, a perfect standard, a, a, a holy standard, and that is the standard to get to Him on our own merits, but none of us can keep it. So all we have is death under the old way. But through Jesus' blood and the new covenant, through the new way, we have life. So it is a living way. And this new way, the author goes on to tell us that it was opened for us through the curtain that is the flesh of Jesus. And again, here through this whole passage, the author continues to to compare the old and new covenant. The the old covenant that was nothing compared to the new covenant and the greatness of the new covenant, the glory of the new covenant. We again see this comparison. Under the old covenant, the the priest would go through that, that veil, right? To enter into the holy place, the holy of holies. And as Jesus came to earth and and took on flesh, the presence of God became available to all in a sense that were around Him. But it it wasn't until He died that unfettered access to God through His death came. Jesus, had Jesus not died, we'd still be denied access to God. As John MacArthur states, an uncrucified Savior could not save. But when He was crucified... When He was put to death, that veil in the temple was ripped from top to bottom to signify the end of that sacrificial system and to signify direct access to God through the death and blood of His Son. So through the sacrifice of His body, we have access to the holy places, direct access to God. So through the first three verses here, we've seen this beautiful picture of why we have confidence to endure, right? Again, it is all of Jesus, but for the, for the professing believer, for the one that has been changed, converted, who's repented, we have confidence. Confidence not of ourselves, but in, in Jesus. But as we ended that subsection there, we, we were talking about a way. It ended talking about a new and living way, right? Uh, a way or the, the way. It implies a, a direction or a path. We are to follow the way. And as Christ is the way, and He is the example for us, then we should follow in His steps. As He goes, we should go. So in verses 22 through 25, the author now gives us three ways in which we are to live out this confidence or live out this endurance. Three ways in which our outward matches our inward. Three ways in which we can follow the new and living way. The first of these deals with our relation to God. How we are to approach and worship Him in spirit and in truth. The second deals with our relationship to the world around us. How we are to walk in this sinful world. And then the third deals with our responsibility and our relationship to our fellow Christian. Specifically, our fellow believer in a local body. Beginning in verse 22, we read, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Beginning here in verse 22, in the light of this confidence in the work of Jesus, we are told or even invited then to draw near. 
Draw near to who? Or, or to what? How? Those are questions that come to mind. Well, we get the answer here. We are to draw to Jesus, our great high priest, as we see there in verse 21, the, the great priest who is over the house of God. We are to draw near to Him, to Jesus, who has already entered into heaven to be with the Father. Now, to draw is an action, right? It, it, it requires an action. We are the actors in this. We are told to draw near. Well, then how are we to draw near? We draw near in spirit and in affection. We draw near in devotion. We draw near in love and in trust and in worship, among other things. Yeah, but how can we do that? How can we do that? Well, the author tells us we do it with a true heart. A heart truly changed by God and one which desires the Lord and His ways. A true heart is the heart of a true believer. The man or woman with a true heart is not one who has just made a profession of word. They, they not, they're not one that has just signed a card or recited a prayer or even made what seems to be a, a good and credible profession in a, a, what we would term a sound church, but then they go on and they give little to no thought to Jesus afterward. A true heart is not one that attends church every Wednesday and Sunday just to check it off the list. It is not the cold heart set on ceremony or following a list of rules to gain favor with God. That is a hypocrite's heart. This is the heart of one who has not been changed. The heart of one who will one day cry, Lord, Lord, but Jesus will say, Depart from me before I never knew you. One with a true heart, though, will not be able to wait until a future day to, to make Jesus their Lord. The one with a true heart already knows Jesus as Lord and has confidence to draw near to Him. Amen. Quoting John Owen, I figured I'd join the, the crowd of quoting John Owen and the Puritans this, this weekend. He says, Without the sincerity of heart, there can be neither boldness nor confidence in our access unto God. The nature of God and of His worship requires this, inter this internal heart sincerity. Amen. We are given more here though as we continue by the, by the author. We are told to draw near with a true heart and with full assurance of faith. Meaning that we should have no question as to the work and the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice. Knowing how much greater Jesus is as has been laid out through this entire book, which again, we've not had the opportunity to fully flesh out, but, but knowing that, how far superior He is and His work on the cross is than those who draw near with true hearts, draw near with full assurance of faith. Without wavering, with unshaken confidence. As one theologian put it, in faith we began, by faith we live and walk, in full assurance of faith, we come to the holiest, never doubting our acceptance there, since He is there whom we love. But there's still more. Those who draw near do so because their hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and their bodies are washed with pure water. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well... Again, as I stated, this passage is consistently pointing, uh, drawing a comparison between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. 
the author continues to point back here to the law and the comparison between the new covenant and Jesus and the old covenant. When the blood of the sacrifice under the old covenant was sprinkled on anything, it was sprinkled to, to picture confirmation of the covenant between man and, and God and to sanctify or purify that object. The blood of Jesus then has been sprinkled in our hearts and has then sanctified or purified our hearts and has given us true hearts capable of drawing near to Him under the new covenant. It has cleansed our consciences once heavily stained and mightily influenced by sin. We are now drawn to God. The guilt of those, that, that heavy conscience stained with sin is gone. The Levit- Levitical priesthood they, they were washed when they were inducted into their holy office. And they were also required to wash their hands and their feet every time they entered the sanctuary as a picture of cleansing. So the washing of water here, we see as a, a picture of, of cleansing. This is not baptismal cleansing. The washing of water was, was a picture often seen in the Old Testament as a picture of cleansing. Psalm 51.7 says, Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me with water, and I shall be whiter than snow. Ezekiel, in prophesying of the restoration of Israel in the New Covenant, in chapter 36, he stated, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. From all your idols, I will cleanse you. Paul uses this same language. He speaks in the same way in the New Testament when he states in Ephesians 5.26, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. In Titus, Paul again speaks of this, and he says uh, he speaks of the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Look, again, this is not speaking of cleansing a person through the waters of baptism. This has to do with our our living and with how the Holy Spirit changes our lives and cleanses our lives. So verse 22 tells us to draw near to Jesus, right? That first prong. Verse 23, it gives us the second prong to our positive response to the Gospel or our second duty given our great privileges to enter into the Holy of Holies. We are told to hold fast to the confession of hope and not waver. To hold fast is to refuse to be sucked in by the world and its wickedness. It is to refuse to be poisoned by lawlessness and sin around us. A person who genuinely trusts in Jesus is a person who genuinely hopes and will hold fast. One without the genuine hope, they're going to let go. But those with genuine hope, genuine, sincere faith, they will endure. Again, Owen spoke to the force of this Greek word rendered hold fast here. He said, first, a supposition of great difficulty with danger and opposition against this holding the profession of our faith. Second, the putting forth of the utmost of our strength and endeavors in the defense of it. Third, a constant perseverance in it. Meaning, we are to hold fast because as we walk in this world as believers, there will be great difficulty. There will be great danger. There will be great opposition to our confession of faith. The lost world will always try and entice and force a believer to deny the faith. And so we must be prepared to use all the strength available to us in defense of our faith. And so we also must be prepared to hold fast constantly. 
not just once. This is not a one-time event. We don't just hold fast once and never have to worry about it again. I really liked how Brother Bailey pictured the, the fight of, of mortification, the act of mortification. He, he did that through the, the picture of the 12-round fight or bout with Mike Tyson. That, that is certainly a type of mortification, but it is equally true, I believe, of holding fast too. The, the spiritual battle we face in the lost world around us, it's going to beat us up. It will constantly batter us. Satan is always trying to make a profession of faith in Jesus a lie. He is the accuser of the brethren. And he wants nothing more than to see a person fail to endure. So we must be prepared to withstand that and hold fast. How are we to do that though? What are we holding fast to? The confession of our hope. What is that? We confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, right? Jesus is our hope then. Now, we shouldn't think of this hope as mentioned here like we often think of hope today. We usually think of that word with a bit of unsurety, right? A bit of wishful thinking. You might hear someone say, man, I hope I don't get sick. My vacation is just it's coming up. I don't want to be sick from my vacation. I just hope that doesn't happen. Or, I hope traffic isn't bad this morning so that I'm not late for church. I may have hoped that once or twice in my life. I'm not sure. Some people use the word hope knowing there really is no hope. Like, I hope Auburn wins the national championship this year. No offense, brother. (laughs) No, but this hope in our passage, this hope that the author speaks about, this is hope where there is not a, a question as to the surety of it. There is not a question as to the end result. It is sure hope. It is hope that we know we can depend on. It is hope with a sure expectation. To hope in Jesus and to hope in His promises is to hope without doubt. It is this hope that we confessed after our conversion and we should continue to hold fast to that hope. If the confession of our life fails to be in line with the confession of our lips though, then we have a false confession. A a false hope. So we are to hold fast to that confession, not only in word, but in action. And this is the the human side of eternal security. The reformers termed it perseverance of the saints. It is the P in tulip. Now let me be clear. This is not something we do to keep ourselves saved. But instead, it is proof that we have been saved. Proof that our confession is genuine. God's sovereignty does not exclude man's responsibility. I can't fully grasp that, I'll be honest. If you can, talk to me afterwards. But it's still true, right? James Haldane, Haldane, I think that's how you say his name, he had this perspective on the fruits of the believer, and I really thought it was great. He said this, Fruits prove the faithfulness of Him who saves His people from their sins and gives them the witness in themselves by the change produced in them. That's fantastic. I think that's great. That, that puts a, a proper view on fruits. It's not, fruits aren't even of us. It's proof that Jesus has made the change in us. There is no reason to waver then from that hope. Why? Why? Because He 
Jesus is faithful. Amen. I'll open the floor for a minute. I'll give you guys, anybody out there who wants to, tell me one single time when a promise that God has made failed. Go ahead. Okay, I don't have time to wait until somebody can think of an answer. And and the reason why is because we'll be here all day. In fact, we'd be here for all eternity. Because it has never happened and it never will happen. God cannot lie, and so His promises can never fail. Look, I do my best to keep my word and be honest. When I tell someone something, I I try my best to honor that word. There's often times I tell... Hannah, I'll go get something for her at the store before I come home for work. And she'll be a witness that that doesn't always happen. I'm certainly not perfect at that. I'm far from it. I've let people down before because I've failed to hold my word. Not Jesus, though. His promises have never and will never fail. He is faithful, so we have no reason to waver in our hope and in our confession of Him, right? And then finally, in verses 24 through 25, the author gives us this third and final instruction to the believers in how to endure. Now look, verse 25 is a verse that most good Baptists know pretty well, right? Maybe not just Baptists, it's probably pretty uh, uh, succinct across denominations that this verse is pretty well quoted or pretty commonly known. But that's pretty much the only verse in this section that we know well, right? It's often quoted to remind people that They're required to go to church. But as we have worked our way through these verses, up to this verse, I hope that we've seen that it is much more than just a simple reminder to go to church. Again, what is the author doing here? He is giving instruction to the believer on what it means to endure. The first two were personal, if you will. Although the results of those actions can and should be seen by others, this third, this third and final exhortation, it directly involves others. It involves corporate worship. We are told to consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Stop here for a second. The word here for consider is a very, very strong word. It means to take very serious and deliberate thought about a matter. One very good translation of this word is provoke, to provoke. It can also mean to stimulate. But when we hear that word provoke, we probably think negatively, right? And it's most often how we we use that word. Usually, if you have children, you probably understand this, especially if you have multiple children. I'm not sure how many times I've told Micah to stop provoking her sister. Stop doing things that make her mad. Look, we can be provoked to anger or to jealousy or to strife. This provoking then is something done intentionally with the purpose of getting a certain response or action from someone. But the author here uses the word in a positive light. We are to provoke one another or we are to stir one another up to love and to good works. Now, this one another is certainly speaking of fellow believers here. There's no question about that, but not just all believers, although it is not bad and it is even a good thing to consider how to do that for all believers that we might come into contact with. But here, 
This exhortation from this author is an exhortation to store up fellow believers who we meet together with. More commonly put, fellow believers who make up a local body of believers. The local church that you are a member of. We are to consider ways in which we can stir each other up to love and good works. So love and good works then are the intended response we are to have from our fellow believers as we provoke them. We're not provoking them to strife. We're not provoking each other to anger. We're not provoking each other to envy. We're provoking each other to love and to good works. Well, how can that be accomplished? Well, let me put it this way. How is the the most sure way to accomplish that? According to verse 25, it's by not neglecting to meet together. By failing to gather as a body regularly, we fail to meet this standard. We fail to do this for one another. Apparently, according to the passage, that was a habit of some in the early churches already. Perhaps, and and most likely, some had actually gone back to Judaism. And that's a concern that we've seen expressed in this book. These would have been those who have abandoned the faith already. But perhaps the author is also talking about some who maybe were neglecting to, to meet together because they were lazy or because they had a habit of putting otherworldly obligations or desires ahead of meeting with their local church, with their local body. All of these could be in view here. What we need to see though is that the exhortation is for us to not be like that. For us to care not only for our our need, our own needs, but for the body to help endure through this life. The body's need for us, right? The, The local body's need for us. By meeting together and considering how to stir one another up to love and good works, we encourage one another. Isn't that great? Encouragement, isn't that great? We need that. I I need that. I don't know about you guys, but I need encouragement. And and, and while I'm here, let me thank you guys. Some of you are, are great about sending me a text during the week or giving me a call to give me encouragement. I need that. You're good. Some of you are good at when we're here talking to me and asking how things are going, checking on the family and and giving me encouragement here. I need that. We all need that according to God. Encouragement is important then to the endurance of the believer. Our passage tells us that the best way to do that is to meet together. All the more as we see the day drawing near. What is this day? I believe it is certainly pointing toward the day often prophesied of in Scripture, the great day of the Lord. The day in which great tribulation shall come on the earth. Now look, the times leading up to that day will be very dark and very difficult for believers. Uh, And the truth is that a superficial or academic, only only that, that, that type of profession, it's going to be no good in that day. In such a day of tribulation, again, that's what the, some, some of the Hebrews here, or some of the, the um, believers, professing believers, they were falling away because of this persecution that they were suffering, that they were going through. There will be heavy persecution in that day, though. There will be a heavy temptation to fall away because of that persecution or because of our sinful desires. 
So all the more, don't neglect as we see that day approaching. We'll need that encouragement even more. So let's wrap this up by giving a quick overview of what we've just learned. This is a passage to encourage believers to endure, right? Uh, I mentioned that there was a threefold privilege given in the first three verses and then a threefold duty here in the passage in the last three verses, but I think we can actually have an overarching threefold map, so to speak. It, it begins with our confidence in, in, our, in the work of Jesus. This is the essential starting point to endurance. There is no other place to start than there. There is no confidence in our salvation or in our standing before God or anything else unless it begins with a confidence and faith in what Jesus did on the cross. Now, although this is part of the Gospel message, that is not the point of this this passage, a call to salvation. No, it is a call for those who have already made a profession to hold fast that profession because of their confidence in the work that Jesus has already done. So we begin there. But the author doesn't just leave us there, right? He doesn't just say, remember this always. Think of it constantly. No, he, he next points us into a way in which we can live out this confidence. This first is, is personal. He directs us to draw near to Jesus with sincere hearts and, and full assurance of faith and to hold fast to the confession of our hope, right? Now, let me state this. To have faith and a sincere heart, we have to have an object for that faith and a sincerity for that faith, right? So let me ask you this. If Jesus is not your Lord, He's just your Savior as you profess, who can you claim to believe and have faith in? How can you claim to have faith and believe in Him, but you refuse to follow and obey Him? Those who do that really don't have a claim of true faith and a genuine heart, right? A true heart. Okay, so with confidence in Jesus, we can see, or which we can strengthen by drawing near and holding fast. Then we have that third part of this, this roadmap. We have the third part where we have this corporate element. We are provoking one another to love and good works in large part by not forsaking the assembling together. Let me make this point before we close. We are called to have pure hearts sprinkled clean. If we are out living for the world and ignoring Jesus, essentially not caring whether Jesus is Lord of our lives or not caring to sin so that glory may abound, then not only can we not have confident faith nor draw near to Jesus, but we also can't stir one another up to love and good works. Those living in such a way they're not exhibiting a desire to meet together, right? Or to be around godly men and women because their lives run contrary to the godly man or woman. I'm not obviously covering any more verses this morning, but I do think it's important to point out before we close that these last three verses here, they're really a transition from the subject of Christian endurance to apostasy, which will begin to be developed in verse 26. So... If these things are God's instructions for us to endure, and by following this pattern, we can have confidence to endure, then what does it mean if we aren't doing these things? If our lives aren't following this pattern, well, I think it means we can have little confidence in our salvation. 
Look, the true believer will endure. No question. But we can't just overlook the constant call to endure. To be an active participant in it. Not through our strength, but through the strength and the faithfulness of the one who cannot lie, whose promises always come to fruition. Through strength and faithfulness of Jesus. Let us then make our calling and election sure so that we may enjoy God in eternity. Stand with me.